After Hours, looking back and reflecting on last week's sermon at Euston Church. Well, welcome to After Hours, where we spend some time thinking about the sermon that's just gone by and and really thinking about the passage that's just gone by in a little bit of depth, giving our preachers an opportunity to expand on a few things that they don't necessarily have time to cram in on the weekend, especially in the days of online church. Today, uh, we're looking at Revelation 6 through to uh, the first verse of chapter 8. And I'm here with Kev Murdoch, who's our vicar. Thanks for joining us, Kev. Thanks, Tom. Good to be here. And I guess as we, we jump into the first one of these and the, and the first one with you, the, the best question to, to start with is, is what have you loved about Revelation so far up until this point? Yeah, thanks. And uh, before that, let me say I was teasing Tom that this is a terrible idea to do this podcast. The whole aim of doing two chapters of, a ter- of Revelation at a time was that we wouldn't have to get into this kind of detail. But anyway, it is very good, of course, that we can uh, go deeper. I think I love, well actually, do you know Tom, there's that bit in 2 Kings where Elisha's servant comes to him in 2 Kings 6 and he's really scared because he's looking at the armies coming against the people of God and Elisha prays, Lord, please open his eyes that he would see and, and then the young man gets this vision of the armies of God and it's basically, you know, be of good courage because what's actually going on here in the spiritual realms is that the Lord is sovereign over this and protecting us. And I, I love that, I think Revelation is, is something like that. That's what's mm-hmm. going on. That John says in chapter 19, I saw heaven opened. And I love it that we get this precious insight into these spiritual realities, the, the battle between the Lord and Satan. And then there's the, the future that's set out so clearly that means that we can be of good courage. The thing I love though is, we're not presented all of those spiritual realities in a head in the clouds way. We get it very much rooted in the reality of life on the ground. And, you know, just those seven churches, you know, to have such spiritual heights in one book of the Bible, plus just such clarity about what our hearts are like, what the people of God are prone to be like. You know, this was the first century. There was no golden age when they were all, you know, just you know, full-on zealous, they're tempted to compromise, they're afraid, they're lukewarm, all the things uh, that we know. And I just love, you know, the connection between these two big things is actually as we think about the challenges on the ground and what our hearts are like, lift your eyes, you know, like the young man with Elijah, you know, be of good courage and actually keep going. It's a book to really embolden us and I've really felt like it's doing that for me so far. Now, there are a few different ways uh, that the book of Revelation is generally approached by different people. And this becomes particularly clear as we look at the different cycles of seven. And we're starting, we're looking at the seven seals today. And so it's probably helpful that we think about those a little bit. Yeah, Yeah, and I'm sorry that we haven't had time to get into this yet in in the sermons. I'll just go through the four main interpretations and the the four horsemen in chapter uh, six are quite a good kind of worked example actually of what these different folks would do with those horsemen. So um, 
preterist is preterist means pastist basically everything in revelation is about something that was rooted in the first century they would take the four horses to be plagues and conquests that were happening around that time and the real strength of that view is it it roots it very much in the life of the seven churches the danger is it downplays some of the more enduring realities and future realities of final uh, judgment and restoration that's preterist the historicist approach sees revelation as being about specific things that happened through the entire history of the church things like the corruption of the church in the middle ages the rise of islam or catholicism um, this was particularly popular around the time of uh, the revelation uh, of the reformation and i think the, the strength in that view is it expects to see things in revelation played out in in real history to be honest, though, it can become a little bit Nostradamus-like as if it's a hidden code for quite specific mm. events, usually quite Western-focused events, and it probably takes things away from the seven churches a bit too much. I don't think that they would have benefited much from being told, you know, this is the Pope is going to come in this era and whatever. Historicist, the futurist approach says, again, it's real history, but mainly stuff as yet unfulfilled. Um, and, and these would be the folks who would tend to be looking at the world now and, and saying, well, with the four horses, you're going to get a, a particular uh, intensity of these kind of plagues and famines and conquests um, in the future. And that will be the sign that the end is just about to come. Um, again, it, it probably doesn't do enough justice to what Revelation would have meant to those early churches. And then the idealist approach takes it as, as kind of symbols or patterns that are worked out through the whole of the era of the church. So the four horsemen being uh, particular things that will trouble the world through, through the entire history of God's people, conquest, death, injustice in various places. Um, now, that last approach, I think, is if you, want, if you ask me where do I land in one box, I'd roughly land in the idealist box as long as we're clear that that doesn't mean it's all symbolic and it's not about real events. So I think all of the other things have a real strength to them. Preterists, yet we have to keep applying it back to the seven churches. Historicists, yeah, you're right. We should expect to see these events played out in real history. Futurist, yeah, there's a huge thing to come in the future that we need to keep um, focused on. But it, you know, by the, end, by the end of chapter 6, we're already at the day of God's wrath. Uh, so that suggests that this is not going to be a linear, chronological thing as we go through Revelation. And the fact that we're going to come around in cycles and see the same things described again and again does suggest that we're looking at patterns uh, for a longer period of time. Also, do you know that bit in Mark 13 where Jesus talks about the end of the age? Actually, he describes things that are a lot like the four horsemen and seems to be saying these are going to be the pattern for the whole of the age uh, leading up to the end. So that's just a few thoughts on that. There'd be a lot more to say. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think uh, especially as we come across the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, uh, knowing that we're coming across events that are demonstrating this pattern of enduring truth of what occurs in history uh, is probably a really helpful thing for us to have in our heads as we orientate. Uh, I really like this image that uh, Poitras uses 
where he says often we try to treat Revelation like a puzzle book when actually it's a picture book. Yeah. And those symbols that keep coming around while being based in real history is a really helpful That's truth. right. It's the Picasso picture from Sunday, isn't it? That uh, uh, Guernica, that, you know, so it's a real description of the Spanish Civil War, but it's clearly not a chronological narrative. We're getting more specific now into uh, the passage that you spoke on on the weekend, Revelation 6 uh, through to 8, 1, mm. uh, where we see the first, the, the seals are being opened, we're in the throne room and the seals are opened, the four horsemen come forwards, which is a really famous image mm. in Revelation, and then seeing the, the fifth seal of the martyrs, the sixth seal uh, of this uh, you know, great uh, events of uh, almost like supernatural natural events that are occurring as the judgment comes forward uh, see the break where we see the 144,000 and the multitude and then the seventh seal of, of silence in heaven it's uh, it's so much rich imagery and so much that kind of impresses upon you and, and distracts you as, as you read it and are absorbed by all the different things mm, that stick mm-hmm. out uh, what has really struck you about this passage in your preparation and and how have you reflected on it since then? Mm, thank you. Yeah, I think one of the things was just, it's a really good example of what I was saying earlier about, um, you know, this big vision stuff actually connecting with life on the ground. So um, we had this amazing heavenly throne room scene in chapter four and five, and then you get these voices, you know, six verse 10, they kind of go, yeah, great, but excuse me, how long? You know, when's there actually going to be justice here? And that, that's brilliant because, again, that says, you know, Revelation fully gets how it feels uh, on the ground. So I love that, I love that the, the big picture stuff is interspersed with that kind of empathy with the questions that, that we are actually uh, feeling and asking on the ground at the moment. I was quite struck. I was just remembering something, you know, Richard Dawkins in his latest book about outgrowing God has this whole chapter on how we've, kind of developed and you know this is something in the air that means the world is becoming a better place uh, as we move on and I was quite struck that these four horsemen are, are rampant around the world uh, through the whole of history and we have lived a very charmed life if we think that we've kind of progressed and moved on from them and I think it helped me just to clarify that it may be that we've lived through periods of quiet waters in regard to one of the horses you know so for example in this in our in, in the west we can say well the conquest of nations that has been relatively settled in some ways since the second world war compared to all that went before then um the economic injustice and now death and pestilence you know on the rampage so it's like these are four beasts it's like you're in the sitting room with these four horses running around you could maybe restrain one of them for a tiny amount of time but in the bigger picture we're very naive you know if we think that we've moved on from 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 this and i think may and maybe the era that we are in now is is helping folks to to realize that so maybe there's an opportunity in the times that we're in to say look the world is tumultuous, isn't it? And actually God's word fully expects that, fully uh, engages with that. And then, and then chapter 7, I love the, the length that chapter 7 goes to to, uh, to make us feel safe, to make us feel like we're part of the, the number that are sealed, the very concept of being sealed, the connection with things like the, the Passover. 
uh, and the you know the marking out of God's people then uh, the white robes uh, the the fact that we're holding palm trees that's a kind of Old Testament image and it says actually we're part of this heritage where God really does secure his people and I love it that we're back in the throne room here in chapter 7 where we were in chapter 4 and 5 but with our voices if you like clearly heard and, and clearly there it's a it's a great picture of, of security and I mean I just yeah I just got quite uh, excited again that familiar idea of God wiping away every tear from our eyes you know just we feel quite full of tears at the moment don't we and um, you know we say come Lord Jesus uh, more than ever and just the idea of coming through the great tribulation verse 7 verse 14 and it's again it's so real isn't it we will turn up in heaven full of uh, full of tears full of unanswered questions and frustrations and and the thought that God himself will wipe all of that away it's it's beautifully realistic about what we are like now and how precious it will be to be with him. Yeah, I really, um, one of the things that really stuck out to me as, as I was reflecting on this was uh, the, the four horsemen are, are something that is so present in the world today, but not necessarily present in our little part of exactly, the world. Exactly, exactly. And, um, and for famine is something that I think, you know, none of us have really experienced um, on on the scale like we see throughout history mm-hmm. and so we have this kind of little idea of protection that's structured into our society mm-hmm. but the second that food supply started to have any form of uncertainty the panic buying began exactly the, yeah this um the the glass shatters and we very quickly just go back to being um, seeing this cycle of the world that, yeah. that continues. And I wonder if that links with some of the interpretation of Revelation that, you know, suddenly if you have a little bit of chaos in our little corner, we get all overexcited and think, oh, this must be a sign of the end times. Whereas there'd be other people in the world saying, well, we've lived with all these four horsemen on the rampage for generations. You know, they must have thought that the end times was around the corner every five minutes. So it, it could potentially be quite revealing about just ourselves. Yeah, and, and really speaks to the danger of too specifically contextualising this stuff, doesn't it, into our individual right. experiences here, um, when our brothers and sisters are like, hey, you, you guys have no idea what this looks like. Were there any final things that you've reflected on before we move on? Yeah, I mean, just there's so much speculation around about everything at the moment, isn't there? There's conspiracy theories, um, you know, people who think, you know, the government are doing the wrong thing on this and that, and... Uh, theories about what's going to happen next and add on top of that Christians weighing in with speculative stuff about what this means about the end times and I just it just made me think this passage that we've had six and seven we've kind of done a whole little circuit there of the last days the world now final judgment uh, final restoration and that the big stuff there is just really clear and it made me think I just want to hold on really clearly to the things that Jesus has said and I don't want to get distracted and into the realms of speculation you know either about coronavirus stuff which I clearly know nothing about and you know everyone's so quick to spout off our opinions aren't we um but then on on the end time stuff as well just to keep saying well thank you Lord you've told us the really big stuff we should expect the world to be like this we know the judgment is coming we know that we're going to be safe uh, we look forward to that day in the future. Help me to keep 
focused on those things, trusting in those things, and and helping to point other people to that very clear framework that you've given us in among all the uncertain things. Yeah, I think it's really um, scary how quickly fear grips us when we take our eyes off the lamb. That's right. And how quick we then uh, turn to things like speculation. That's right. So looking back on your sermon now, uh, what are the things for people listening that you really want to reinforce uh, going forwards from here? Yeah, thank you. Well, I think one thing is just the context of it, which we didn't have very much time for. Basically, what I think we're in now is we're in a, a, the big middle section of the book of Revelation, um, kind of from chapter 4 through to uh, at least 16, 17, where we're getting these kind of circuits round the last days before we get to a big, very final victory and very final uh, Satan thrown down, new heavens and new earth. So in this big middle section, we're going round in circuits looking at the last days leading up to judgment. And we kind of did a whole little circuit with this sermon through chapter 6 and 7. So this, starting with the world now, leading up to a day of wrath, but from which God's people are protected and their future is secure uh, in the throne room with the Lord. So that, that's, that's what it was a whole circuit of, and each of the three points was one of those things. So we started with uh, looking at the world now and the chaos uh, of all of that with the four horsemen, um, and with the persecution of God's people. And we didn't, we deliberately didn't dwell on this, but the bit where they ask, how long, O Lord? And then they get some sort of answer, and they got told that there's going to be this um, period of time where the number of God's servants and, and there's a both and in the original in 6 verse 11, both the number of God's servants and the, the brothers who are going to be martyred, the full number of those is not yet complete. Now, we deliberately didn't really unpack that because that's going to come up in a later sermon. Um, but that they, that there was just a hint that God wants to not just say the world is like this, because we know the world is, is like this, but actually give us a hint that there's purposes in it. So that was kind of a trailer for something that we're going to see in a couple of weeks' time. Um, and and the other thing I hope that you were clear on from that first point was that these terrible intruders of death and pestilence and conquest do operate under permission. So given authority, given permission. It reminded me of Job, you know, the way Satan is given permission uh, to wreak uh, his, his havoc. Uh, 6 verse 4, for example, permitted to take peace uh, from the earth. And then in the fourth seal, 6 verse 8, given authority over a quarter of the earth. And the quarter of the earth probably is just another thing that, that signifies it's a specific permission. You know, it's all, it's, these horses are on reins, if you like, very long reins where they can do quite a lot of damage, but God is holding them on the leash. And that's just a really, really important thing for us to uh, be clear on. Um, and then as we, uh, another thing, some of this is, the, I think what's going on here is this is a whole tour around the circuit in two chapters, giving tasters of things that will be unpacked. So sorry if it felt slightly unsatisfying. For example, on the second point about the day of wrath, 
verse 12 to 17 of chapter 6. Notice the connections with the way Jesus talks about that day in Mark 13. Um, and what we will unpack in future weeks is that will be a day of justice. You know, the specific thing that they were crying out for the martyrs was how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. So the day of God's wrath is a day of his justice. And I sometimes use that word justice instead of judgment. It may be sort of, missing like, what's the difference? But I think we have sort of specific connotations when we think of mm. judgment day as being just kind of, uh, it's quite general. But it's a day of God's justice, and we, we care about justice. And that's something that we'll see as we go on. Actually, that day of God's wrath, terrible day, though it is described as, actually, when we think about that day, uh, we long for the end of uh, violence, the, the end of abuse. We long for a day of accountability. That's actually what it's talking about, and lots more on, on that uh, to come. Um, and the thing, by the way, on all of these points, the thing I would love to have long before would be to dwell on each of the uh, the seven churches. I mean, you, it would go on forever if we took each of the seven churches, but I try to just start to do that. So... Uh, Smyrna in their persecution, you know, maybe feeling like the martyrs need to be told, don't fear, you know, that the world is on God's leash, even though it looks chaotic in front of you. Um, and then Pergamum are the ones in the middle where they were tempted to compromise with the big forces of their day. I take it that's why the great ones are mentioned in 6 verse 15, the generals, the rich, the powerful. These are the people that Pergamum, Thyatira are looking at, thinking, Rome, you know, we, if you want to do well in life, you need to be beholden to Rome. And I take it that what's going on there is, is a massive puncturing of the bubble, a bringing down in size of those people. Make those people smaller in your sights. And make God, the day of his wrath, much bigger. And actually, that is a great exercise for us to do, isn't it, as we think about the scary, scary... Uh, influencers in London who seem, you know, to dominate. Everyone has to kind of weigh in behind a certain uh, worldview or, you know, you're defriended and deplatformed and all of that. But it's bring down those people as you think about the day of God's wrath. I think that's what's going on there. Uh, and then chapter chapter 7. Well, I think I'll, I'll leave you to do this on your own. Spot the Old Testament connections is, is the game with chapter 7, I think. And I think the purpose of that is to say, we're part of a heritage of God protecting his people. That's what he specializes uh, in. And those white robes, do you remember Laodicea Church where they thought they had everything, they didn't think they needed God? And they were told to ask, you know, buy from me the stuff that you need from me, those white robes. So if ever you were feeling complacent, if ever you were feeling, you know, self-sufficient as a Christian, look at that picture of Revelation 7 spot that it's only the fact that you can be there in a white robe because you're washed in the blood of the lamb and you know it's a weird image isn't it washed washed white by blood i mean we find that hard to get our heads around it probably comes from the fact that in the in the the priesthood back in leviticus the the priest had to make a sacrifice for their own sins to be pure enough to wear the robes that made them priests of god but there's only one thing that can make you fit for that and that's the blood of blood of jesus so if you know, if you if you still feel a bit complacent and a bit Laodicean, read chapter seven and remind yourself you could never buy your way into that future, uh, and you could never be good enough or you know 
able enough, all those things that they were in Laodicea. And this is a picture of something that only the Lamb can give you. So be on your knees asking him for these things again. Yeah, great. Um, there are a couple of things you've, you've kind of already mentioned, but thinking about a few things that you maybe didn't get time to touch on in your sermon that you think uh, you'd really like to ex- expand on. Was there anything that you you just felt frustrated that you weren't able to expand on more? Um, I mean, kind of some of all of that that I've said, really. I mean, it, it kind of, I'm sorry about the pace that we're going through. There's, that that could have really been three sermons, couldn't it? Um, one on one on the world now, one on future judgment, and then one on a future secure for God's people. Um, I think the reason that we've done it this way with the sweep is because because of this kind of sweeping coming round again. All of those things we will dwell on more. So in some sense, it is appropriate to take it uh, as as a big sweep. Um, I think the thing, if I'd had more time, actually would have been the rubbing it into the specific churches because I want us to really not lose that as we go on through Revelation. You know, this must, we can get caught up in, you know, oh yeah, look at coronavirus, look at this and that, but actually remember the seven churches, all of this must have had a specific application to them, emboldening them like the Elijah, Elisha's young servant, actually look up and it's Corrie Ten Boom's quote, you know, don't look in, don't look at the world around, look up. Uh, actually, this must in specific ways have helped those churches with their challenges. So I'd, I'd love to, in a way, do another sermon where you just go through the whole passage again, thinking about those seven churches. And I suppose that's really helpful for people who are reading through Revelation at the same time as we're doing the series. That's right. That they have uh, the seven churches as an interpretive framework. Yeah. That they should be approaching the the more interesting images with that's right yeah yeah that's really helpful um there are a couple of uh images that i just want to ask you about a little bit more mm-hmm. um with the martyrs crying out it it appears that they're essentially people who have have surrendered their lives to gain eternal life yeah and that their cries are in tune with god's justice that will come in, in god's time do you think that's something that we should reflect on? Do you mean the fact that they, they're clear on the fact that God is going to avenge? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I th- and, and actually, I mean, we talked on this very briefly, but you really only ask that how long question in this way if you really believe he is sovereign and that he is going to judge. Mm-hmm. As, you know, as I said, the atheist doesn't, the atheist doesn't ask that question if they're consistent in their atheism, because there's no who you ask, you know, who you even asking the question to. You don't believe in God. The agnostic even doesn't ask it because they'll make a vague cry at the moment in the middle of coronavirus, but they have no expectation that there's anyone sovereign or with a plan out there. It's the person who knows him who asks the question, "How long?" And that's something that we saw in uh, Psalm 13 a few weeks ago, where we looked at a psalm that asks that precise question but the person asking it is the like these saints the godly sufferer who knows the lord and knows he has a plan and promises to restore um so i think that's that is interesting so we may think that asking how long is a sign of weakness or ungodliness but if we're really asking it in this way it means we know he's in charge 
Yeah, the martyrs aren't whinging. No. They're convicted. That's right, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's really helpful and, and kind of reinforces that this day of justice that is to come is something that we desire and not fear because we desire justice uh, for our God. The other image mm. that I want to jump on, just because people might be thinking about it, yep. is the 144,000. Yeah. Um, just because of the different, I guess, views in, in popular culture that come out a bit. Um, how do you think we should be reading... I mean, the, the, this 12 tribe list is really interesting because uh, Dan is absent. Exactly. Um, which tells me that it's not meant to be literally taken. Yeah. But, but how do you think we should be viewing this, especially in the context of the multitude? Yeah, that's right. Well, there's different... So if you've got friends who are Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, so the classic Jehovah's Witness approach was this is the... These are the, the saved ones, uh, literally 144,000. I think they've moved on from that now. I think they say, you know, something like it's the kind of super, super duper Christians. Um, you know, the, the martyrs, perhaps, you know, that's the, a precise number. Um, I think it's clearly in the context of revelation and the symbolism and the symbolism of numbers. I think it's clearly uh, symbolic. So 12, uh, 12 tribes. Uh, 12 with, you know, add three zeros is a way of saying just, you know, the full number, a, a big a big number. Um, and the 12 12s is, is a, it's a kind of completion number again. I think that's what's going on. I think that, so I, I, I think it's the complete tribes of Israel. I think that's what's been described. But I think the more, maybe harder exegetical question, and I, I, I want to hold this one slightly more loosely, is some people think that the, the 12 tribes is the full number of actual uh, Israelites, Jewish people who will be saved. It's, it's, not, it's not that there's only going to be 144,000 of them, but it's symbolic of them. And then the great multitude added it in after that as, okay, so there's a set number of Jewish people who are going to be sealed and saved plus the great multitude from the nations as well. It could, it could be that. It could be that. I don't, I don't want to totally uh, rule that one out. Um, I think more likely it's, it's just another way of describing the same crowd who are in the great multitude. Um, so there's this interesting num point that John hears the number sealed, 144,000, but then when he looks, he sees this great multitude. So it could be another one of those take the visions and the voices together. You know, the, the whole people of God are the real Israel. And when you look at them, what you see is a multitude that you can't count from the whole nations. I think I'd go with that probably. Um, and partly as well because it's the servants of our God who are being sealed. You know, the full number of God's servants was what the martyrs were told about. Again, that seems to be a general term for all of God's people rather than just physical Israel and on that approach if you you say well then why why mention the tribes of Israel at all again I think it's part of rooting this in a heritage rooting this in patterns of behavior that God has shown in the past where he 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 protects his own he knows his own he's committed to them he seals them and it makes a lot a lot of sense that we are described in that way as being like Israel. Yeah, I really like the continuation of the theme of hearing and seeing, like we saw in um, chapter 5, where he hears lion and sees lamb. That's right. Um, and I think I, 
I, re- I really love the idea that John hears the fullness of, of God's people in Israel, and then he essentially sees before him the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, doesn't he? Exactly, exactly. Which, exactly, which it always was. It never was just a... Because you could think, oh, this is quite nice for them, but it's quite cliquey, quite uh, tribal, quite ethnic, that list. And then, and then you see they're from every nation, and you remember, yeah, way back before the nation of Israel, Abram was promised, actually, this is going to be a blessing to every nation. Fantastic. Well, thanks for um, expanding on that image a bit more for people. Um, just lastly, uh, how do you see, from this point, the book of Revelation moving forward, yeah. particularly considering this part of the text? Yeah, thanks. So I think, I think the thing to have in your mind is what we're going to do is circle the airport, if you like. Have you ever had to do that? I once went on a flight from Manchester to London. It's ridiculous. It takes about 10 minutes to fly from Manchester to London. But the whole flight took well over an hour because when we got to Heathrow Airport, we spent 45 minutes circling it. And if you think, as you go past the sh- oh, there's the Shard, and oh, BT Tower, Tower Bridge, lovely. Hang on a minute, isn't that the Shard again? Isn't that BT? If you do that and you think you're on a linear journey, that's a very confusing place to be. Mm. And I think that's what I just want to remind us as we launch forward into the, the rest of this part of Revelation. Um, keep remembering we're circling the airport, as it were, rather than going through chronologically. Now, God doesn't circle the airport for the same reason they do at Heathrow, because something's gone wrong on the ground. and it, There's a purpose in this circling. And, and so what you can expect to see is different aspects of the things that we've seen in that first little tour, homed in on and unpacked, so we've seen some stuff about the world as it is now. Now, actually, on Sunday, Ed's going to unpack for us in chapter 8 and 9 a whole bunch of stuff about the judgments on the, on the world now. We had a tiny bit in chapter 6 about the purpose of the delay and the, the witnessing and the expansion of the kingdom that's going on in the delay. When we get to chapter 10 and 11... The circling of the airport is going to, that's the thing we're going to pause on and look in in much more detail there. So I think that's, that's the thing I just want you to have, have in your mind. I think that's probably enough to say about that for now. Just uh, keep thinking, okay, there is, a, there's a, there is something linear. There's a progression from this world to a great day of wrath and a day of uh, restoration and safety for God's people. Uh, as we tour uh, the last days, where, where are we particularly having our gaze focused? in each part of this big middle section is the thing to think about. Yeah, that's really helpful, especially with the, you know, the, the, the circle as you kind of then go down towards Heathrow. It's, exactly. Um, it, it, gets, it captures yeah. that intensity exactly. that comes from a spiral. And that here we're seeing that only a quarter of the earth is affected here. Yeah. And then in the trumpets, we'll see a third and it, will, it gets more intense. And as we get towards the the phenomenal stuff that comes towards the end. That's right. And the sevens, by the way, the seven uh, angels, seven trumpets, uh, seven scrolls, all, all of that stuff is, uh, seven seals, sorry, all, all of that is kind of markers along the way. Mm. And again, that number seven marker of completion. So when you get to the end of a seven, you've kind of, you, you know that you've, okay, you've kind of come to the end of something structurally and we're moving on to something else. Great. Well, Thanks, Kev, for giving us a bit of time to expand on that. Hopefully it's helpful for you guys as you reflect and continue to think about 
uh, this sermon series moving forward. Uh, it's our prayer that it doesn't just tickle your brain, but helps you to know and love the Lord Jesus more as we look forwards to uh, the wonderful time when he returns. Thanks, Kev. Appreciate your time. Thank you. That was After Hours. Join us next week or get in touch with us at eustonchurch.com. <laughs>